Well, I'd like to invite you now at this time to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, as we make our way through this letter that the Apostle Paul penned in the mid-50s AD to the church at Corinth, the church that was sharply divided amongst themselves and uh, filled with many problems, we come to chapter 12, and I'd like to read the first 11 verses, and so let us uh, once again give ear to the reading of God's Word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in this Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. That you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, the Apostle Paul has been addressing uh, the, the topic of worship in the church, orderly worship as the congregation assembles together in sacred assembly. Back in chapter 11, he told how the Corinthians ought to respect gender roles as they are rooted in God's created order. And then he also rebuked them for their severe abuse of the Lord's Supper and pointed them in the right direction about how they ought to do that. And that what we see uh, emerging from these chapters where the Apostle Paul addresses the topic of worship are two main points. Number one, that everything needs to be done in love. Love for one another ought to be our motivation And then number two, the end of all things ought to be for edification. That is the building up of the people of God. And so all things motivated by love for edification, for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, now in chapter 12, he takes up a new topic, that that of spiritual gifts. That is gifts that the Holy Spirit freely bestows upon all his people individually which gifts ought to be exercised within the congregation. And so he begins addressing spiritual gifts, and he tells the Corinthians that he does not want them to be uninformed. Now, it's interesting because clearly the Corinthians were not 
ignorant of the fact that spiritual gifts existed. If anything, there was an overemphasis upon spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues, as they had this unhealthy preoccupation with that gift. And so when Paul says he doesn't want them to be uninformed, he's not talking about the fact that they are unaware of the existence of spiritual gifts, but rather he wants them to be informed of their proper use, what the gifts ought to be used for. And so before he goes into speaking positively of the proper use of the gifts, he reminds his predominantly Gentile congregation of their former lives in idolatry. Now, of course, Paul's already mentioned the fact that idols don't really exist. They, they're just uh, made from human hands. They have eyes but do not see, mouths but do not talk. He's also emphasized the fact in chapter 10 that behind the idols, behind the whole idea of idolatry, is a demonic influence. And it was those demons that were leading them astray in their former pagan lives. They were led astray following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sun's of disobedience. That's their former life that Paul reminds them of. And the point here is, the implicit warning is that they shouldn't take their former practices of idolatry, the the former forms of false worship, and somehow then apply that to the worship of the living and true God in the Christian congregation. I think that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And so he goes on to uh, apply a test, a, a litmus test, uh, as if you will, how the Corinthians would know whether one is speaking or acting in the Spirit or not. But when we look at this test, which is in verse 3, we, we have to say it's rather obvious of a test. He says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God would ever say Jesus is accursed. This has puzzled many commentators because, after all, what Christian in their right mind would ever say this or let alone claim that the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to say, Jesus is accursed? This has led to all sorts of wild speculation amongst commentators. Some have said that they were, uh, it was this ecstatic utterance that they didn't mean to say, Jesus is accursed. Oh my gosh. Uh, or, Or some other perhaps types of false teaching which would lead Christians to say this. Another very interesting uh, suggestion uh, is that uh, when we look actually at, at the original Greek, which says Jesus, or the, the English says Jesus is a curse, the original Greek literally is anathema Jesus. There's no verb there. The verb is implied. And so your English translations will insert the, that verb there is because they think the context demands it. But one suggestion is that perhaps in this saying, Jesus isn't the object of the curse. That is, they're not cursing Jesus, but rather Jesus is the giver of the curse. In other words, according to this suggestion, the Corinthians were praying that Jesus would curse others. Now, why would they do that? We see a major aspect of pagan religion, of idolatry in the first century, was not just that you would pray that the idols or that the gods would bless you, but you also prayed that the gods would bring misfortune and failure upon your rivals in the form of a curse. And you would do this for any and all reasons. If you were in a sporting event, you would pray that the gods would curse your rivals. 
Uh, you would pray that the gods would curse your, your business rivals, or if you were involved in litigation, that you would win in court or even in your love life. If there was a rival lover, there's actually, uh, we, we found extant uh, curses that, you know, these, you dig up these temples and you see these written curses that, that this god would curse this woman, make her barren, so that, uh, so that you would get the love of your life. You see, idolatry is all about you. Idolatry is all about what you, what benefits you can get out of it. So whether the, the gods are blessing you or cursing your rivals, at the end of the day, idolatry is all about you. And so perhaps by applying their former ways of paganism to Christian worship, perhaps what's going on here is that they were praying that Jesus would curse their enemies or their rivals so that they might gain a personal advantage. And we know that the Corinthians were divided, not just over which apostle they liked best, but even when they were partaking of the Lord's Supper, they were divided between the haves and have-nots, and perhaps even here, they were trying to one-up each other by praying that Jesus would curse their rivals and give them the advantage. Well, if indeed this is what they were praying, Jesus, curse my rival, Paul emphatically states that this is not of the Spirit. No one praying in the Spirit would ever utter such a thing. But rather, the person praying by the Spirit would say, Jesus is Lord. You see, while God hates division, he loves unity. And this is what unites us most uh, uh, fully, is our common confession of faith. This is the proof that one has the Holy Spirit, that is, they say, Jesus is is my Lord. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there's that confession, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, some of us might say, well, wait a minute, aren't many people at that last day, at the last day, didn't Jesus tell us that many people will say to him, Lord, Lord? Did we not do this? Did we not do that? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So how is it that Paul can say that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit when, in fact, many people claim that Jesus is their Lord? Of course, many people can claim to follow Jesus. But only those whose hearts have been made alive by the Holy Spirit of God can say Jesus is Lord and mean it. And so this isn't just some empty mantra. This isn't just something we, are, we repeat because we've been taught it in Sunday school. This is a confession of faith that is followed through with your life. A spirit-led life is one that is under the gracious reign of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Paul tells us in Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But conversely, if you have the Spirit of Christ, you're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit, and Jesus is your Lord. And so here are, this is the litmus test. Do you seek to to please yourself, or do you seek to please Jesus, your Lord? That's the sign of having a Spirit. I've mentioned the fact that God hates division. 
But one thing we see when Paul talks about spiritual gifts is that while he hates division, God loves diversity. He loves diversity. Notice what Paul says in verse 4 as he begins to talk about spiritual gifts. He says there are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of gifts. And here we see this this, uh, thing that pleases God. Diversity is reflected not only in the original creation. Think about how God created things. He didn't make everything one. He didn't make everything the same. But he made everything diverse and different. Various types of heavenly bodies, various types of earthly bodies, as the Apostle Paul will reflect upon in chapter 15. He loves diversity. We see that in the original creation, and we see it in the new creation as the Holy Spirit gives diversity of gifts upon all his people. As a matter of fact, there are as many gifts as there are Christians since every believer is a unique combination of the gifts and graces of God. You see, your individual gifts, your individual abilities, your individual talents or experience or sensitivities, the, all those things that make who you, you who you are is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And only you are that gift. And so God loves diversity, and we see that displayed as the gifts are bestowed upon the people. But we also see that this diversity in unity, which is reflected in God's people, is is actually a reflection of the nature of God himself. After all, God is one, but he is many. We see that God is, we confess in uh, in the Apostles' Creed that that, uh, we believe in one God, but for in three persons. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul mentions here. Did you catch that when I read verses 4 through 6? There's varieties of gifts, but one spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord, referring to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And then finally, uh, uh, there are uh, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone, referring to the Father. Here's an unmistakable reference to our triune God who is united in being and yet diverse in persons. And that unity and diversity is reflected upon the people of God as a diversity of gifts are bestowed upon us individually so that we might be united together in the Spirit. We often think of spiritual gifts as pertaining primarily to the Holy Spirit, and it's rightly so, because the Spirit is the immediate uh, actor. He's the one who bestows the gifts, and yet we shouldn't think of it, the Spirit, as being separated from the Father and the Son. In fact, all the works of God are are Trinitarian in nature, and so when we think of spiritual gifts, we should think of them as coming from the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. These are gifts of our triune God bestowed upon his people. And then Paul tells us the purpose of spiritual gifts, what they are given for. Look there in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I mentioned the fact that idolatry is all about you, what you can get out of it. So you prayed that the gods would bless you and curse your rivals. Here we see that Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity is not about you. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he talks about spiritual gifts, he doesn't say it's for your benefit. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you don't derive a benefit out of spiritual gifts. Surely you do. But that is not the primary purpose of spiritual gifts. The primary purpose of spiritual gifts are for the common good. Edification, building up the body of Christ. It's for the benefit of the whole church, not just yourself. So to paraphrase once again from JFK, ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. And so Paul goes on to give just a a sampling, a mere sampling of some of the spiritual gifts to show the diversity amongst the unity uh, uh, that the Spirit bestows upon the church in verses 8 through 10. Now here Paul lists nine spiritual gifts. But we shouldn't think of these spiritual gifts, or we shouldn't think of this list as being exhaustive. Certainly, he adds to this list later on in the chapter. You can compare Romans chapter 9 or Ephesians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul lists even more spiritual gifts. These are are not exhaustive lists. And even if we were to compile all of the lists, and scholars have done it, there's approximately 20 spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. We shouldn't think of that as being an exhaustive list. This is merely a sampling of the type of gifts that the Holy Spirit bestows upon each and every one of us individually. And even uh, uh, these gifts, we shouldn't think of one person possessing only one gift. As a matter of fact, many of us possess several gifts. And so the mistake would be for us to compile this list of gifts and then to look at it, and then to look in the mirror, and to think, well, which one is my gift? Like we're taking some sort of personality test out of a magazine. And the tendency for us is to think, is, is to you know, do this all by ourselves, in isolation, to look at the list and look at us and think, well, you know, I just don't know what my gift is. I just don't know how the Holy Spirit has gifted me. We might, might ask, well, what is my gift? The, the answer is you are the gift. As I said before, you are a unique combination of gifts and graces that the Holy Spirit has given to you, and the gifting with the Holy Spirit is a calling to use those gifts. You are the gift, so get to work. Your gifts will only be recognized, typically by others, when you use them. This idea of compiling a list and standing and looking in the mirror and trying to figure out what gift we have will never work because you're doing it in isolation from the body of Christ, and the only way your gifts will be recognized is if you are using your gifts. So God's gifting is a call to action. As Paul tells, or Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Boys and girls, a steward is somebody who is entrusted with something that doesn't belong to them, but they're supposed to use it and be responsible for it. It's like your parents giving you the keys to their car. You got to be responsible for that, but you're supposed to use it. One thing that really bugs me is when I'm on the road, and I get behind a sports car, and they're driving slow. You don't get in a sports car and drive it like a golf cart. No, you get a sports car so that you can open it up and see what it can do. I wonder how many of us in our Christian life are driving a sports car 
like a golf cart. You think, well, I don't know what I'm capable of. I don't know what my gifts are. And so I'm just going to sit back and not do anything. Well, guess what? If you do that, you'll never know what your gifts are because you're not using them. When you get to work, when you stop thinking about yourself and think about others, your gifts will begin manifesting themselves and other people are going to be recognizing that gift. And then you're going to be encouraged to pursue those gifts because gifts not only need to be recognized and used, they also need to be improved upon. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy to fan into flame the gift that is given to him. And so think of a gift as like a little spark or like a match, and you got to light a huge fire to warm everyone. You need to fan that into flame. You need to work it. You need to hone and refine your gifts, and you can only do that in practice, in use, as, you, as you're using your gifts to the edification of the people by God's grace. Well, not only do we need to use our gifts so that they might be recognized, so that we can hone and refine them and fan them into flame, but we can also pray that God might grant to us more gifts. We can earnestly desire other gifts. You see, God is freely bestowing these gifts upon us. He just wants us to use them. And so God, in his sovereign wisdom, bestows these things, these gifts upon us, so that we can serve the body of Christ. And so now we get in, we can start looking briefly at some of these gifts that the Apostle Paul lists. In verse 8, he mentions two that, at least at first glance, might seem very similar. To one is given an utterance of wisdom, to another an utterance, or literally a word, of knowledge. As I said, these two things, wisdom and knowledge, seem awfully similar. I suppose if we're going to dissect it and see the difference between wisdom and knowledge... Uh, knowledge would be uh, having the truth, having the facts, and wisdom would be knowing how to apply that truth, having to, ha- having to uh, apply those facts to everyday life. But it's interesting that the Apostle Paul begins his list by talking about a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. Because those of you who have been with us throughout the book of First Corinthians know that those two words, wisdom and knowledge, have appeared quite a lot. Those were kind of catchphrases amongst the Corinthian congregation. The Corinthians actually fancied themselves as being wise and being knowledgeable. And yet the Apostle Paul has to correct them. Because the type of wisdom that they were claiming was the wisdom of the world. And the type of knowledge that they had was puffing them up, making them be arrogant. He says in chapter 3, if any one of you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And in chapter 8, he says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This so-called knowledge, he says, puffs up, but love builds up. You see, in contrast to the, to the so-called wisdom and knowledge that the Corinthians claimed to possess, Paul speaks of the wisdom and knowledge which comes from above, which comes from the Holy Spirit, especially in the form of the message of the gospel, the word of the cross. Paul tells us that it is a Christ crucified that is the wisdom and power of God. And so here, when he speaks of a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom as being a gift of the Holy Spirit, I think he's referring to the ministry of the word. What you are hearing right now is a word of wisdom. 
and a word of knowledge because you are hearing Christ in him crucified, that Jesus is Lord and that he has saved us by his spirit. And this ministry of the word is mentioned first because I think it serves a foundational and permanent gift in his church. We'll see this later on as as the Apostle Paul, And if you just skip ahead to verse 28, he says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. All three of those, what they have in common is they're all part of the ministry of the word. That's foundational. It's upon the ministry of the word, the message of the cross upon which the church is built. Well, in verse 9 and 10, Paul moves from the ministry of the word to what we might call sign gifts, which serve as a validation of the message preached. As the message is proclaimed, it was, it was uh, the Holy Spirit who bore witness, testifying to the truth of that message through these sign gifts. The first one being faith in verse 9. Now here, of course, we ought to distinguish this gift of faith from what we call saving faith, since That's possessed by all of us. Every believer has the gift of saving faith, which unites them to Christ. But this type of faith is is one that describes an extraordinary act of faith, such as we read of in the Old Testament or in the book of Acts. This is the type of faith that can move mountains, as Paul says in chapter 12. Of course, faith is only as good as what you put your faith into. This is not the power of positive thinking, Faith is not a power in and of itself. It is merely a resting and relying, a trusting in God. And yet this gift of faith was bestowed upon certain individuals in extraordinary times as they relied upon God. Another sign gift listed here are gifts of healing. Now we know that Christ and his apostles performed healings, which are all reversals of the harmful effects of the fall and signs of the new creation. And this gift of healings continued in the church to continue to validate the message of salvation. As Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God, he confirmed it. It was validated through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the healings that he wrought. And it was the same with the apostles. Now, certainly God still heals today. God is God and he'll never stop being God. And anytime anyone is healed, whether through what we might call an ordinary means or extraordinary means, God should get the credit. I think it's always interesting that whenever somebody is healed in such a way that doctors can't explain, we get really excited, and rightly so, and we praise God, and rightly so. And yet, why don't we get excited when we take antibiotics and feel better 24 hours later? Shouldn't God get just as much credit for the antibiotics as the extraordinary Uh, healings that may occur from time to time. At the end of the day, God always heals, but what we see here is the gift of healing that serves as a sign to validate the message of salvation during the time of the apostles, but now that the canon of Scripture has been completed, such sign gifts have served their function. The message has been validated, and now we have this validated message to freely proclaim. Well, the same thing is true of various miracles, uh, as we see in verse 10, literally workings of power. Um, And and this would describe things not only like uh, things that we read of in the book of Acts, like when the Apostle Paul survives a poisonous snake bite, 
or raises uh, uh, that uh, individual from the dead, but also things like the Apostle Paul striking Bar Jesus with blindness when he was opposing him in preaching, or the Apostle Peter striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. These are also manifestations of miracles, of workings of power to validate the truth of the message. I like how uh, those who claim to be apostles today, it'd be very interesting to challenge them not only to heal somebody, but also to strike someone blind, see if they're capable of doing that to validate their claims of being an apostle. Well, finally, the Apostle Paul transitions to what we might call revelatory gifts, which, like the sign gifts, have served their function as the foundation of the church was being laid by the apostles during the time of the writing of the New Testament. These revelatory gifts, such as prophecy, we've already seen prophecy mentioned back in chapter 11, when the Apostle Paul talks about somebody praying or prophesying with their head covered or uncovered. And back then, we saw that prayer, if prayer is speaking to God, prophecy is speaking for God. We tend to think of prophecy as predicting the future, and certainly there's an element of that in both Old and New Testament prophecy. But more often than not, prophecy is not just foretelling, but forthtelling. Skip ahead to chapter 14, verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, if you think of somebody speaking to the congregation for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation, what would be the sort of current counterpart to prophecy? Well, of course, it's preaching. That's why the Puritans used to refer to their preaching as prophesying. And they would have these prophesying meetings where they would practice delivering sermons, preaching to one another, something Queen Elizabeth hated. And yet, ultimately, that's what we see happening even now. As the Word of God is proclaimed, not in a revelatory sense, since the Scriptures have been completed, but ultimately, that's why the Apostle Paul urges prophecy in chapter 14 as being for the building up of the body of Christ. Well, correlating to this gift of prophecy is the gift to distinguish between spirits, as it's translated. Paul will later command that when one prophesied in the church, that he should then sit down and be quiet and allow the others to weigh the message, to assess that message. In other words, discernment was required because, after all, people could stand up in church and claim to be prophesying when, in fact, their message was not of the Spirit. This was something that needed to take place in the, uh, the early church. And so we read, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Or John tells us in 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So even during the time of extraordinary acts of revelation, as people were given the gift of prophecy, there needed to be the corresponding gift of discernment to be able to distinguish between truth and error, uh, to be able to distinguish whether the message truly came from the Spirit or if, in fact, it was a false message. 
Well, related to the gift of prophecy is the gift of various kinds of tongues. Now, I think this is a very unfortunate translation. It's an overly literal translation. That's literally what the Greek says is tongues. And yet when the New Testament uses the word tongues, it's referring to languages. It's a euphemism for a type of language, right? Since we use our tongue to speak, a tongue refers to a language. And so this gift of various types of languages referred to not gibberish, not just saying whatever came out of your mouth, but it referred to real spoken languages that were known and spoken by others, but was unknown by the speaker. That is what the gift of languages is and was, or was in the first century church. And we know that because that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. There assembled on the day of Pentecost were Jews and just men from all around the world who spoke their own various types of dialects. And as the Spirit came upon the apostles and those gathered in the upper room, and they began proclaiming the mighty acts of God, what happened? The people were amazed and astonished, and they said, are, are all these not who are speaking, are they not Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And so this was the gift of languages, not gibberish, not ecstatic speech, not just saying whatever came of your mouth, but a known spoken language that was unknown to the speaker, but of course, probably unknown to the rest of the congregation, which required the last gift listed, the gift of interpretation of these languages. And in fact, this was required for edification and for orderly worship. As Paul will go on in chapter 14 to say, look, if you are just all speaking in tongues, no one's going to know what you're saying. You're only going to be speaking to God, but even you don't know what you're saying to God. And so it is not edifying. And so you need this corresponding gift to be able to interpret the message so that everyone can give their amen. Well, Paul will have much more to say about that when we get to chapter 14, but as we conclude today, the main point, which has been repeated throughout this list, is that all of this diversity, all of these various types of gifts, which has been bestowed upon each and every one of you individually, has come from one and the same Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, who has united us together and in, in strengthens us in order to use our gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. Christ is not divided, and neither is the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, whom you have poured out richly upon us, and, and who not only unites us to you by faith, justifying us and making us righteous in the sight of God, but who also fills each and every one of us individually with gifts. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of those gifts and graces, that we would uh, freely use those for the building up of the body of Christ. And we ask that you would continue to conform us more and more into your image and that you unite us together in your name. Amen.